children, I'll never forget the pain that comes from having your loved one ripped from you by violence. Jody was just a, a, a beautiful gal in, in many ways. Jodine was last uh, talked to when she was alive by a very close friend of her named Serene Cloud. Uh, and then apparently the next day, nobody heard from her and there was no answer, no answer, no answer. Jodine was found on Valentine's Day in 2007 um, by her father and she had been sexually assaulted and, and murdered. On that terrible night of Valentine's Day 2007, my husband Art had caught a quick glance of the killer of our daughter in a very dim lit room. For 11 and a half years after that night, every time I would see a man that fit that profile, I would wonder if that could be the man that killed our daughter. And will he do it again and get away with it? I, I walked the streets in Carlsbad, said, I wonder if he did it. I wonder if he did it. You know, and it, it was very painful. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most horrific criminal cases in California history. This podcast also examines some of the most unique cases, sometimes with unexpected results. Today, we are going to talk about the amazing work that the San Diego District Attorney's Office and law enforcement have been doing to solve cold cases with the use of genetic genealogy, the tool that was used to solve the Golden State Killer case, and hundreds of cases now across this country. My guests today, and I'm honored to have all of them, are San Diego District Attorney Summer Steffen, District Attorney Investigator Anthony Johnson, and Lois and Art Sarin, the parents of murder victim Jodine Sarin. Thank you all for joining me today on this podcast. Good to be with you, Anne-Marie. Thanks for this opportunity to highlight important work that matters. First of all, Summer, let me let me start with you. You are the San Diego District Attorney, and you have been the District Attorney for a couple of years now, but you've been a prosecutor your whole life. So I'd like you to just kind of tell the listeners about yourself, your office, and the amazing work that you do in San Diego. Well, um, San Diego County District Attorney's office is uh, really my home. I've been there for 32 years. I rose through the ranks to become the elected district attorney after 28 years of doing the, the, the work of serving victims, protecting the community. Um, I was elected in 2018 and it's, it's been an honor to serve in that capacity. But one of the things that is so special about being the district attorney is really working and seeing the incredible dedication of uh, our thousand employees. Of course, sometimes you have these employees that are um, just superstars. And I'm so glad that Tony Johnson, our premier investigator is here. He brought us all of his experience from homicide at San Diego police. And when I had a vision to expand our cold case division um, he was the perfect fit to, to lead the investigative team there. And I know we'll talk about some of the cases, but I'm also just so pleased to be here with the, with the Sarens. Um, you know, when I was at uh, Parents for Murdered Children, I'll never forget, this is before this case was uh, solved, uh, Jodine's case seeing them and, and seeing not just, you, you begin to recognize it, the pain that comes from having 
your loved one ripped from you by violence, but also the pain of not knowing who the killer is and whether he's lurking behind the corner, knowing that you haven't gotten justice. And I remember talking to them and saying, I can't promise results. I can promise you we will never forget about Jodine and we're going to do everything to solve it. So for me, this is just exceptional to be here with them and to, to know that we were able to fulfill that promise, um, which is so important. As you know, Henry, you've devoted your life to victims of crime and began the investigative genealogy of the whole movement, which we benefit from. Um, Tony Johnson, I want to kind of switch to you for a minute. Summer mentioned that you came from San Diego Police Department. Maybe you can just tell the listeners a little bit about your background and how you got involved in cold cases. Well, uh, Anne I'm an old man. I've been in law enforcement <laughs> for 42 years, starting on my 43rd year. I did about 32 or 33 with San Diego PD. And my last uh, about uh, 10 years were in homicide and then cold case homicide. Um, I was attracted to cold case homicide because the cases have already been not set aside, but they've been kind of passed over because all the leads have been uh, used up. Right. And um, I always thought that there was something more we could do with some of these cases. Uh, they just needed a little bit more time, and a little bit more resources. So I ended up going over to cold case. I loved it. And when it came time to retire from San Diego PD, I was clever enough to uh, trick the DA's office into hiring me up. And next thing you know, I was back in cold case at the DA's office. Before we talk about Jodine's case, if you can just either Tony or Summer, just tell us a little bit about what your cold case unit is. Who's, who's in it? How many investigators? How many prosecutors? The types of cases you guys are looking at? Well, currently we have uh, three deputy DAs and two investigators assigned a cold case. Uh, and uh, we have jurisdiction throughout the county. And what we do is work with the local agencies, uh, try to provide them resources and assist them in resolving their cold cases. Uh, there's currently about between San Diego PD, sheriffs and the other agencies, there's probably about 1500 unsolved cases going back to the early 70s. And there's a very small amount of investigators. So we're trying to apply all of our resources to get as many of these cases resolved as we can. Uh, we're tending to take a look at the old cases first because they're running into problems with, uh, you know, as witnesses pass away and as evidence gets set aside, uh, we're running out of time to solve those. So we're kind of starting with our older cases and moving forward towards our fresher cases. We have the, the three dedicated prosecutors. All they do are cold cases and the two investigators. But we also look at cases where there's already been a deputy district attorney and, and or investigator or both of them that knows the case, that's their case, they've worked on it. And then with the help of the latest and greatest in, uh, in all of the CSI advances, the team helps that particular prosecutor. Uh, they may have the case, even though it's a cold case and try it, but they have the support of the of all of the investment in the cold case unit. And recently, we got to grow the unit because we got an almost half a million dollar Department of Justice grant specifically for investigative genealogy. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's so um, powerful about this new tool that we call genetic genealogy because it, it, it does give hope. Um, and again, I've always said this, they're not all gonna get solved. I mean, 1500 cases is a lot of cases, Tony, um, but it does give hope that if, if you do have forensic evidence, that we can take the next step. Once the Golden State Killer was arrested and this new tool kind of came out, what was the next step for San Diego in using that tool, either you or Tony or both of you? Well, I hope your ears were burning, Anne-Marie, because <laughs> we, we, Tony and uh, Chris Lindbergh, um, our DA that you know well, um, presented to the whole office. And first thing on cold case, and the first thing you know, they said is basically, Henry Schubert began this for us with the Golden State Killer. Uh, and the fact that you traveled, the first thing I asked you to do, remember when I became DA, was to travel to San Diego with your 
team and to teach us uh, about the Golden State Killer and what we can do in San Diego to expand uh, our reach and ability to uh, do this work. And we were taking curious notes. And I think you, you probably are very proud that we really um, went all out. And um, since that time, we've had nine cases that have been solved using investigative genealogy. I mean, cases that are already charged, so on and so forth. So we really appreciate you, but that was the first, that was, you began that and uh, we were committed to it. And that was a commitment for me as DA is to have a very strong cold case unit. We cannot forget about these injustices from the past. They're just as important as the current cases. Right. There's two cases we're going to talk about today. Um, the first one is Jodine Sarin, which happened in 2007. And, and Mr. and Mrs. Sarin, I just, if I could just start with you and just maybe tell us about your daughter before she was killed. What was Jodine like? Just tell us a little bit about her. First of all, she was very, very young and very, very well alive. And that's the part that wounds my feeling. If you, uh, I was with a, a contract <clears throat> career and I was often quilled on doing something to be super dangerous of, of being dropped. And consequently, I dealt with, uh, if you if you may pardon my feeling, I had a, and, and my condition, I had a stroke slightly okay. before. Okay. And it, it, uh, it, it <clears throat> inhibits my speech. So if I sound different, it's... It's okay. It's okay. Uh, I appreciate it. But I, I, Jody was just a, a, a beautiful gal, and she dealt with a problem of her own on her uh, uh, <clears throat> comprehension and things like that. But I was always, always concerned about her. We, we have five other children, and uh, she is the second oldest. And uh, <clears throat> the, the long term. This this the horror of it all that I we experienced. I, I'm sure you, parents can remember and, and had to take advantage of that beautiful, beautiful uh, effort that went forth to solve her case. And uh, her case primarily dealt in a dark room, and and it was it was particularly horrendous. That it occurred, and it was a particularly horrendous life for my wife and myself to take that case and continue it through the the series of truths. I can only say I am ever, ever, ever grateful to Summer and her department, and particularly the ones that it, it says six, seven, eight, nine, ten in the department that they participated in this case before it was finally solved. Jody was just the sweetest young lady. She loved her family. She loved animals. She had a horse for many years when we lived in Ohio. His name was Sam. Uh, she used to do something really sweet uh, to her family. For their birthday, she would send cards, and in the cards, she would always make up her own little poem, something like something simple like "Roses are red, violets are blue. I love you, and God loves you too." Just she was just the sweetest gal. We miss her. For the listeners, Jodine was found on Valentine's Day in 2007 um, by her father, and she had been sexually assaulted and, and murdered. Um, and you correct me if I'm wrong on any of the facts, Summer or, or Tony. Um, but if you can start us off, Tony, with kind of, it was Carlsbad, it was Carlsbad Police Department, right? Yes. 
So just kind of walk us through all the work that was done and then how you got to this point of using this new tool of genetic genealogy. Jodine was last uh, talked to when she was alive by a very close friend of her named Serene Cloud. And they talked on the phone on Tuesday night, February 13th. And this was at about 10 p.m. And Jodine discussed the fact that she was going to a Valentine's Day party the following day. Uh, and then apparently the next day, uh, nobody heard from her. Uh, Jodine stayed in close contact with her parents. And they had tried calling her several times. And there was no answer, no answer, no answer. So finally around, uh, I think it was 10 o'clock on the 14th, which is Valentine's Day, uh, Art and Lois became so concerned that they went over to Jodine's apartment. And they knocked on the door, knocked on the door. There was no answer. Uh, Art had a key. He opened the door. I think the uh, little security chain latch was there. He pushed that down. He went inside. He went to Jodine's bedroom. And it was dark in the apartment, from what I understand. And he saw what looked like Jodine and a male companion in bed. Thinking this was a consensual encounter, uh, Mr. Saren said, hey, get dressed and get out of here. And then they waited in the living room area uh, to be a little discreet until the participants had a chance to get dressed. Well, it turned out that it was not a consensual encounter. And then Mr. Saren had actually basically walked in on a murder rape. And the suspect uh, escaped, we think, either through the backsliding glass door or through the front door. Uh, and ultimately, Mr. Saren and Lois found out that their daughter was dead. She'd been beaten and raped. I, I have the highest compliments for Crossbed PD. They never gave up on this case. They worked it uh, for years and years. Uh, they tried everything. They invented the, they, they had uh, semen from the offender. So they knew that all they had to do was identify the semen and they would identify the offender. Uh, everything that was available to them, they tried. They did a familial search. Uh, they checked uh, local databases uh, for DNA, such as CODIS. Orange County has their own database. They checked that. Uh, they really did everything they could do. They checked uh, databases down in Mexico. Um, and then one of their checklists that they said was they brought the case to the DA's office. So we became aware of the case around 2015. And we also put some resources on the case and kept doing everything that we could do. And then we heard about this new cool thing called investigative genealogy. And of course, everyone in the state heard about that because of the Golden State Killer. And we thought, well, why can't we try that on Jodine's case? So that's what we did. What does it mean when you say you're going to use this tool called genetic genealogy? Well, any member of the public can uh, go to a company and get their own DNA entered into a DNA database. And what that company does for a nominal fee, usually it's between $50 and $100, uh, they compare the customer's DNA with that of all the other customers in the database who have entered their DNA. And of course, we all know that the more DNA we share, the more closely we're related. Right. So in this particular case, what the company does is they give you back a list of your relatives, whatever contact information those relatives have chosen to enter, and then you can contact them or work on your own family tree, whatever you want to do. Well, this new tool, investigative genealogy, what these people did is they took the DNA from the crime scene and entered it into the genealogy database. So what they came up with was uh, DNA and family relationships for the offender. And then using that as a starting point, you come starting with the closest relatives, they try to build a family tree and identify the offender through traditional law enforcement means. And of course, this is a huge breakthrough because those of us in the cold case community, for many years, we've been sitting on many cases that are entered into CODIS, but we don't have a hit. And you reduce to where you almost feel like you're just waiting for a CODIS hit. And now we could actually do something proactively to try to solve some of these cases. Right. So Jodine's case was, I think, the first case in San Diego County where we decided to try this because we had uh, enough sample to retest it. And we also had companies that were available to do it. So Summer, obviously, I'm sure you were well in uh, the, the, the circle of, of this particular case and the use of the tool. Tell us kind of, you know, how, how was the decision made in, in, on this particular case and, um, you know, what, what you thought about trying this new tool? Right. So 
we we knew that Carlsbad Police Department had done everything possible. You know, the, the chief and I would talk about it. This was a priority case, an, an innocent young woman murdered and sexually assaulted in her place. That is a top priority. So we, we look for those things where there is no other lead. There's nothing that hasn't been followed up on. So this was the perfect case as the first case to try uh, that tool that you used in the Golden State Killer. And we were ready to go. We made sure that the team was fully trained, that we did everything by the book. As you know, investigative genealogy is investigative. So right. after you get that lead where it points you in one direction, instead of looking at the whole world of possibilities, it just narrows down where your suspect is. Then you go and you do your traditional, um, we don't charge anybody based on a genealogy match. That's when the real investigation uh, begins. And that's what Tony did. And then when that uh, investigative genealogy hit came in November 19 of 2018. So that's like 11 years later from uh, 2007 when Jodine was murdered. Um, it was so exciting. It was unbelievable. I was um, so wanting to talk to Mr. and Mrs. Saren, but we wanted to make sure that we do all of the uh, investigation. That's where the plot got a little um, uh, more difficult Bigger. in that um, he had committed suicide. Our suspect, David Mabrito, he had committed suicide on January 30th of 2011. Um, and so we didn't have the ability to go and compare his DNA and get a match. And that's when Tony Johnson tracked down his nearest relative, the ex-wife, and then his son. And as you know, we try to be very transparent in this process. And, you know, Tony, and he can tell you his style of complete honesty and letting the, um, the wife and also the son, Dylan, know that he has, you know, as he believes the father did this terrible thing, the murder and rape. Uh, and that we need the DNA from Dylan, the son, to confirm that and put uh, to rest this case and put to rest the Sarens, Lois, and Art. Yeah, and, and first of all, I want to say I want to make sure and give credit where credit is due. Um, I realize I'm the person sitting here in the podcast today, but actually there was a large number of detectives and officers that worked on this case. And in particular, Detective Eric Cavanda from Carlsbad PD played probably a much larger part in this case than I did uh, as far as uh, solving it and trying these new technologies. But in any event, um, when we went to the Sarens and told them their case was solved, um, I think it lifted a large burden off their shoulders. And even though we knew that there would be no prosecution because the offender was deceased, um, it, it, it was still a good thing. Yeah, and, and first of all, I wanna say, I wanna make sure and give credit where credit is due. Um, I realize I'm the person sitting here in the podcast today, but actually there was a large number of detectives and officers that worked on this case. And in particular, Detective Eric Cavanda from Carlsbad PD played probably a much larger part in this case than I did uh, as far as uh, solving it and trying these new technologies. But in any event, um, when we went to the Sarens and told them their case was solved, um, I think it lifted a large burden off their shoulders. And even though we knew that there would be no prosecution because the offender was deceased, um, it, it, it was still a good thing. And Marie, a really interesting twist in this is that Oceanside Police Department, the, the killer lived in Oceanside. They had uh, stopped him three days earlier um, for a suspected robbery and had taken his DNA. And, uh, you know, Tony, Tony told me that his theory, which makes a lot of sense, is he committed suicide, not because of guilt over what he did to Jodine, because there's no one with a heart that would do something like this, 
but because that DNA sample that was taken by Oceans and Police, he thought was gonna finally discover that he did what he did. And that's why he took his life a few days later. Tony, don't you think that's the analysis? Yes, and I think it's ironic because they say sometimes people think the police uh, department's a lot better than it really is because that <laughs> DNA was never tested. Uh, Mr. Mabrito was clear to the robbery and the DNA sample went into the property room and there it sat for all those years until we finally identified him as the offender. So he actually would have got away with it, but of course he believed that wasn't the case. Three days before he committed suicide is when law enforcement collected his DNA that in his mind probably would have led to his identification as the killer of Jody and Sarah. That's correct. And say, had that DNA been entered into the CODIS database, then yes, he would have been identified, but he never was. Okay. And that's because he was cleared of the robbery. They, they, right. they, they had yeah. whoever did the robbery. So there was no reason to follow up further. Sure. He right. was just you know, somebody they stopped on reasonable suspicion, but he yeah. wasn't the, the robber. So that was the reason. Can I just say something that was very painful for me? On that terrible night of Valentine's Day 2007, my husband Art had caught a quick glance of the killer of our daughter in a very dim lit room. For 11 and a half years after that night, every time I would see a man that fit that profile, I would wonder if that could be the man that killed our daughter. And will he do it again and get away with it? And then one day, the detectives came to our home to tell us that they had solved the case. And it was uh, nothing short of a miracle for Art and I and for our family. So we are very, very thankful and uh, hope that all the future cold cases will be taken into account with this genetic technology to solve these cases like they solved ours. It was God's work. It was a kind of thing that never should have happened. At the time, like she said, that every 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 guy that looked like uh, there was a fragment of identity. Every every I, I walked the streets in Carlsbad, said, "I wonder if he did it. I wonder if he did it." You know, and it, it was very painful. It it, uh, it lingered, and it, that that was taken away finally when when the murderer uh, put put to rest because I felt vindicated. that I think, you know, when we do cold cases, and Tony, you, you as well, it, this is probably the most common theme, whether it's a, a rape murder, whether it's a rape case. I mean, would you agree, Summer, that this is what, what the Sarans are saying and the pain they went through for so many years is a common thing that we hear from crime victims? It is a common thing, uh, Anne-Marie, but unfortunately, they don't, um, victims of crime, they don't have a microphone. I mean, this show is unique that you are bringing the, uh, the focus on Jodine and her family, but um, they, they, they just live with their pain, but the attention all of a sudden switches to the, the person who committed the harm, uh, because most of the time they're the ones who are alive. So the, the victim is, unless prosecutors and law enforcement and the community continues to cry out for that justice, it begins to get lost. But it's a common theme. I mean, you know, Art, uh, Mr. Saren shared that it was literally like a stone was on his chest the whole time and it was lifted. The pain doesn't go away of the loss, 
But that additional huge burden of looking over your shoulder, thinking, you know, this could be this person. Uh, in the end, uh, I mean, Mr. Saren's description was pretty close. You know, it was very much like the person, uh, like the, the murderer, David Mabrito, uh, but older, an older version. So he was, he was right. Um, and, and that was another piece of the puzzle. But, you know, the Sarens are so amazing that they uh, had shared with me that, and that may, maybe they can expand further, that they really wanted the reward. There was a $50,000 reward, and they wanted that reward to go to Dylan, the uh, killer's son, um, because they felt that it was very courageous of him to value uh, lifting their burden over protecting his father's reputation. Um, and it didn't work out, but maybe um, Lois and Art, you can expand on that a little bit, because we, we were all together at a Citizens of Courage, um, where I host the Citizens of Courage to highlight victims and survivors. And we gave Dylan an award, uh, because we want to encourage people to, to act honorably like that, to not cover up for murder and rape. And he was that young man. Our thoughts were very much an appraisal of the family and meeting them. I found that they knew nothing of this and they were brave enough to come out and, and identify. In any event, we ended up feeling as though that that reward should go to Dylan and then and, and Dylan and his mother. They had been separated for a long time and, and he lacked a father. And I, I, as being a father, seeing the, you know, the terrific effort that they put forth. And I, I, I just feel it as though a stone is lifted from my back. We maintained contact with Dylan. He was a fine young man, a fine uh, student. Marissa, who was David's ex, uh, was a wonderful woman. She was horrified to find out that uh, David might be involved in something like this. And um, as a matter of fact, when uh, she um, was talking to us she was saying that she felt kind of almost guilty for many many years after david's suicide because she thought it was something she had done and when she finally realized that the suicide was probably caused by david's in his mind imminent uh, outing as a murder suspect it kind of took a little weight off her shoulders as well she kind of felt like maybe after all these years it wasn't my fault after all it was something entirely uh, that i had nothing to do with so it kind of helped her, I think, kind of cleanse her, her soul a little bit. I'd like to thank Tony. We were going to be um, sitting with Mar Marissa and Dylan at this banquet dinner. And Tony offered to bring the four of us together to kind of break the ice so we could kind of meet. And it was a very awkward decision to make, I'm sure, for them and for us to get together with them. But Tony brought them to a restaurant in Carlsbad where we met them. And it was very touching because we looked at each other and Dylan brought over a little gift for me. It was an orchid. And I, it was just so touching. So the four of us had a very nice breakfast. It started out a little awkward, but it turned into a nice morning of getting to kind of know each other. So that when we did go to the dinner in San Diego, we all felt a little more comfortable and it, it, was, it was good. It was all good. Shows a lot about Tony Johnson, about you as a family and about Dylan and his willingness to overcome what his father was responsible for. Right. Um, so I want to just kind of switch gears for a second here and, and, it, and talk now about another case that summer that your office was involved in. And, and, and we'll circle back at the end with you, the Sarens, just in terms of, of really this case. But um, there was another case that you, Summer, really picked out. And Tony, I call it the Becker case. 
Um, if you can kind of maybe tell us a little bit about that um, and, you know, why was this case picked and who, who was Barbara Becker? I'll let Joni fill in more, but just this was a really horrific murder. Another Barbara Becker, uh, a mother who cared for her children and, you know, she again, murdered in her own home, in the sanctity of her home on March 21st of 1979. So this was an older case than the uh, Jodine Seren case. Uh, and again, San Diego, this one was San Diego Police Department. They worked very hard on this. Uh, her husband was a doctor in La Jolla. It was just, you know, one of those horrific murders where you're murdered in the sanctity of your home. Uh, Tony, you know, knows the details are so terrible to understand the, the horror this woman went through. And again, no leads until enter um, investigative genealogy. And her um, case was solved after the Sarin case on February 14th of 2019. So a few months, uh, three months or so after the, the Sarin case was solved, that case was solved. And there were simil similarities also to, um, I mean, the hit came, the, the genealogy work began in October of 2018. But there were similarities too in in that uh, the the murderer was dead, and uh, again Tony had to go to work to do the rest of the story and to identify. But Tony, you spent a lot of time on this case, beginning at San Diego Police. So I'll turn it to you to talk about it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of cases where we talk about these cases, and everyone is familiar with the cases for years. And Barbara Becker was one of these cases. Um, like you said, Barbara was killed in March of 1979. She lived on Glenwick Lane in La Jolla. Uh, she was 37 years old. Uh, she'd been married about 15 years to Dr. Michael Becker, uh, who was the head at that time of internal medicine at the VA hospital. Uh, they had two sons, Jonathan, age seven, and David, age nine. And on a particular morning where Barbara was killed, uh, the dad and the sons left the house about 8.20. Uh, Jonathan got a ride to school with his dad. Uh, about 9.30, uh, we know that Barbara had a phone call with a friend from a volunteer group because Barbara did volunteer work. Uh, about 10 o'clock, Barbara was supposed to have a hair appointment, but she failed to show up. And then about one in the afternoon, uh, Jonathan and David came home. Uh, the doors that were normally shut were not shut and the doors that were normally shut it was something was wrong they went inside and they found basically their mom's body laying on the uh, living room carpet and she'd been stabbed multiple times and her throat had literally been cut from ear to ear uh, the me would later identify nine separate strokes to the throat um, the detectives just pulled out all the stops on this one uh, they did everything they could. They interviewed neighbors, they interviewed housekeepers, delivery people, everybody they could think of, but they're just basically there was just nothing to go on. So these these two boys that were seven and nine are the ones that found their mother? Yes. And had she been sexually assaulted? No, it was not a sexual assault in this case. Uh, what we speculate is it may be an interrupted burglary. There was a television that was normally on a stand and it had been moved down to the floor. So we're thinking maybe that it was a uh, some type of theft and Barbara was in another part of the house and walked in on it. The interesting thing about this case was there was so much physical evidence because as sometimes happens in stabbing cases, the offender in this case cut himself by accident. And there was literally a blood trail throughout the house. It was a blood trail in the kitchen, by the kitchen sink where he tried to clean up into the bathroom. Uh, there were paper towels with blood and toilet paper with blood. So he was trying to stop a bleeding injury. And of course, as you know, we can get DNA from blood, but in 1979, there was no DNA testing. So the detectives collected the blood, but um, were unable to really do much with it other than ABO typing. Yeah, so back in, the, back in those days, like that's the, that's the height of when the Golden State Killer was, was committing his crimes is that DNA was not out there. And so these- Unfortunately. These, yes, unfortunately, but, but in a way, because DNA was not known, these offenders had no idea that years later 
we'd be able to use this wonderful tool called DNA to identify who they were. Yes. Um, so at some point, Tony, along the way, when DNA did come into the to our crime fighting tool chest, um, was DNA done on these these items that the perpetrator left behind? Yes, of course, as you know, there's a database called CODIS, which contains the DNA samples of certain convicted persons. Each state has their own database. And then, of course, they all communicate nationwide. And uh, the San Diego cold case team reopened Barbara's case in 2003, uh, took DNA from the blood and entered that into CODIS, but there was no hit. So the case stalled out again. And of course, at the time they entered it into CODIS, it was already 24 years past the uh, time of the murder. Okay, so when, so you, I mean, Summer, you mentioned that it was in the fall of 2018 that this case was kind of handpicked to do this genealogy. So maybe, Tony, you can kind of walk us through, you know, what, what did that entail and, and how, did you, how did you get to that, that suspect? Well, of course, once the door, so to speak, was blown off the hinges with the Golden State Killer case, we were anxious to go through all of our cases to see if they were appropriate for uh, genetic genealogy. This particular case of one was on the top because we'd been talking about it for many years and it was obvious that all we had to do was identify the donor of the blood and we would identify our suspect. So in this particular case, in about the second week in October, we uh, entered the uh, DNA into a genealogy database. Um, some good hits came up and what we're looking for are close relatives that we can start building a tree on. Uh, and we did a couple of what's called target tests in this particular case, which means that as you get closer or if you want to resolve whether or not a particular family group is involved or not, you go out to certain people that are in the family and you ask them, can we have your DNA to try to narrow this down? Right. And uh, the vast majority of people, when we go to them, of course, we want to be 100% honest and transparent. Uh, they're more than willing to help. In this particular case, about the last week in November, uh, we went to a woman named Nancy who lives in Cucamonga, and she agreed to give us her DNA. Uh, we got the results back on December 16th, and literally, she was so closely related to the offender that within an hour after getting the results back, we had what was what we felt was the likely offender. His name was Paul Chartrand. Okay, so then from there, well, tell us about this guy, Chartrand. Uh, well, Chartrand uh, was a... a had a criminal history. However, his criminal history all occurred before CODIS was set up. So he would have been a candidate for CODIS. He should have been in CODIS, but he was not because he passed away in 1995. But it's very interesting because in October of 78, so just a few months before Barbara's murder, uh, Paul had been arrested for a kidnap rape case. Uh, he was out on bail, he jumped bail, and he was actually on the run from police in March of 79 when Barbara was killed. So we're thinking he was, you know, up doing burglaries, whatever. Uh, he eventually got picked up on the warrant and he did seven and a half years in prison. He got out uh, and lived a life of uh, minor crimes until he died in Phoenix in 1995. Once you got his name through the genealogy tree building process, I'm assuming you were trying to make sure you could put him in San Diego and at the time that Mrs. Becker was killed. Yes, and it turned out, interestingly enough, he had a furniture cleaning business on Fay Avenue in La Jolla, which is not too far from where the victim lived. So he was not only in San Diego, but he was very proximate to the victim. Uh, unfortunately, he had been cremated, so there was no way to get DNA from his body. So we had to, similarly to the Jody and Saren case, we had to go to a son and an ex-wife uh, to do a familial test or a reverse paternity test. Okay, and so were they willing to do that for you? Yes, they were living up in uh, Marysville, Washington, and we traveled up there. I traveled up there with a sergeant from San Diego PD, and uh, we explained to them, and before we were even through with the explanation, they said, well, do you want our DNA or what? Uh, and uh, they were very cooperative, and as a matter of fact, when we explained the whole situation, the son said, oh, I'll bet you anything it's my dad because he used to throw me through the wall when I was a kid. So apparently Paul was abusive to his children and uh, the, uh, the, the sons had no particular love for him. 
you know, it was one of those things where this guy was, was hor horrific, you know, and uh, this was an interrupted burglary. And of course, I thought that if he had more time because he had done a kidnap for rape, that maybe that would have happened also to, to Mrs. Becker. And then, of course, you can't help but think of those two little boys walking in um, and the trauma that results and being able to talk to Dr. Becker and um, be able to also hear that relief. You know, you can never take away the trauma from a violent loss, uh, as we know, but, but there is a different feeling when you uh, can really close the chapter on who the killer is. And it was really wonderful to be able to hear that again with Dr. Becker and his family. But it just made me think about, you know, seven and a half years for, um, for a terrible kidnap for rape. That was before we changed the laws, as you know, for um, one strike and the kidnap for rape. And, and of course, I worry every day as we see these laws that protect from future violence uh, getting rolled back, you know, on predators, sexual predators and, and criminals. But it, this case was, was a, also a highlight because it was so old. It gave us hope that you can right. solve the case from 1979. Right. So it, it, we kind of began to feel like no matter how old um, a murder is, and we, we actually, Tony, we're doing a murder right now that's in court that's, that's older than 1979, right? It's a 1969 case. Exactly. Wow, that's that's probably the one of the oldest I've heard of in a, in a courtroom. Right, and that one we're in court, so we can't talk too much about it. But but it did make us have this hope that we can actually go back very far in time and and recover justice in those cases. Right. So I want to kind of you know we're coming to the end here, and I want to just kind of get to everybody's kind of final thoughts, and I'll start with the Sarens, and you know. Looking back on this, you know, what happened to your daughter and the years that it took to solve it, you know, what, you know, as you sit here today, kind of for folks that have suffered similar types of violent crime, what would you say is your message to them? The message I, I would give to others on this is very, very, harrowing and a horrible experience. But the way that it was handled through the various police and then Carlsbad and the way that it was treated, and I never gave up, never give up. Well, wait, I would have waited until my time to go before I could finally put it to bed. We're just so grateful to Tony and, and Summer and the Carlsbad Police Department for being so dedicated and caring and compassionate and always keeping us in the loop, what was happening, giving us encouragement. Just so very grateful and thankful for all of them. Thank you for that. Tony, you know, with your 40 plus years of experience um, in, in these, not just these particular cases, but, you know, What's your final thoughts on, on this new tool and, and, and where we go from here? Well, uh, Anne-Marie, I uh, have postponed my retirement because I want to keep working on these cases. We've got about 10 in the hopper now, and I can't wait to uh, get to work Monday and put some more in. This is very exciting for those of us who are in the cold case community. It's, uh, it's a godsend. Well, it's a testament to you. I mean, you... You are uh, unique in a sense of, of just, this is your passion, this is your life. Um, but I will say this, that having worked in law enforcement for so many years, this, is, um, this really highlights the amazing work that they do every day to try to bring answers and justice for crime victims. And I'm quite sure Summer feels the same way. Definitely uh, feel that it's the highest honor in life to protect the most vulnerable and victims and survivors of violent crime. They've been 
without their choosing being put in this most horrific circumstance of pain that comes from violent loss, from homicide and rape. And being able to stand up for them and never forget about them is, is just a really uh, noble way to live through life. And I'm just very proud uh, and honored to serve and to have a team like Tony, I'm not gonna let him retire even. <laughs> I'll, I'll recycle his papers if <laughs> he comes to me. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but really, as you know, Anne-Marie, the, the courage of, of uh, the Sarens, you know, to, to be on this show because they wanna give hope to other families and they wanna make sure that law enforcement continues to have the tools in investigative genealogy to solve more cases um, and the, the uh, support, you know, in, in being able to build cold case units and not just become reactive units, but to be able to actually investigate and, and that takes a huge investment. So I just, I'm always just so overwhelmed by the courage of people who lost the most like the Sarens. And I just appreciate them so much and their support and uh, making sure that we continue to have the tools to fight the good fight for justice. Well, I just wanna thank all of you. I think that this highlights not just the amazing work of law enforcement and the impact that it has on crime victims, but it does show the amazing work of the San Diego law enforcement community and the DA's office. And, and to the Sarens, thank you so much um, for your willingness to talk today and to share your story, because I do think that this new tool is perhaps the greatest hope that we have in bringing many of these cold cases to some kind of, of answers and justice for your families. Um, so for each of you, thank you. I appreciate it. For the listeners out there, thank you for joining us on InsideCrimeFiles.com. And I look forward to our next episode. And any other, just thank you all. If there's any other final thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Just we appreciate you and Marie for starting all of this for us. That, that's what opened the door. You're, uh, you're never giving up, giving up on the Golden State Killer and showing that it can be done through investigative genealogy. So thank you thank for you. that. Um, for the listeners out there, um, I hope you keep listening to these podcasts. You can find us on InsideCrimeFiles.com and listen to more about the true consequences of crime and the innovation and inspiration that comes out of these cases. So I just thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files.